Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Better Words. Thank you so much for joining us. So we had to take a little break for a week just due to some personal things, but we are back and we have a really great interview to share with you today as always. But first, we're going to recommend some, I was going to say books, but actually um, it's more audio today, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, technically mine is an audio book, but I think it is probably the least book like audiobook that I've listened to which isn't really saying that much because I haven't listened to that many (laughs) that sounds really really good and actually when you told me what you were going to recommend I thought this is perfect for lockdown and stuff as well because you were telling me about it when we had a little phone conversation one day anyway and it sounds so fun so what are you recommending yes so my recommendation this week is the audiobook version of Kitty Flanagan's 488 Rules for Life. And the audiobook is available for free currently on the ABC Listen app, which is how I listened to it. And because it's for free, and that's awesome, I have recommended it to a few people because it's so funny. Like, it's so, so funny. I really like Kitty Flanagan. And she does explain at the start of the book Oh, and it's read by her, I should say. I guess she's a stand-up comedian. She talks for a living, so she reads her own book. (laughs) But at the start of the book, she does explain that this 488 Rules for Life started out as a joke, a bit of a skit or sketch or whatever on The Weekly with Charlie Pickering, where she said in response to like 12 Rules for Life, very, you know, famous books like that that are... Jordan, I think it's Jordan Peterson, his 12 rules for life. And she's like, 12 is not enough. I have <laughs> lots of rules. <laughs> and and so then, I don't know, it kind of it went on from there and she wrote down lots of rules. And I think the funniest thing is that there are actually not 488 in the book. When you, oh. like, when you're listening to the book and it is very, like, you know, there's, stories and anecdotes and things like that that go along with the rules in different sections and as I was listening I was like oh cool I'm up to like 380 and well you know I've got like 100 rules to go or whatever (laughs) and then I forget exactly how many it is it's like 430 or something like that I think and she says you know what I couldn't think of any more (laughs) (laughs) So 488 rules is still catchy and we're still keeping it, but there's technically not that many rules in the book. Coincidentally, also, I think only like last week or something, she announced that she's actually releasing more rules (laughs) in a new book, Um, which I now cannot wait to read because as funny as this book is and you think, oh man, these rules are hilarious. There are so many that you'll agree with and you'll think oh my god it bugs me so much when people open packets of chips in the movies there should be (laughs) rules about that it's just it's such a joy to listen to it's so so funny that sounds so good and I I love Kitty as well she's so funny so I can just imagine this is a joy to listen to it is it's such a joy to listen to also because she reads it And it is funny. So there are bits where she'll read out her own rules that she wrote. And she's like, I can't believe I'm saying this. And, (laughs) you know, there are extra bits like that. Like there's a couple, and there's a couple of moments as well in the book. Well, where she says, you know what, actually, I have just since decided. Like, I think it was a rule about how many times you're allowed to sneeze before you have to like get a tissue. (laughs) Like you just like (laughs) sit there sneezing. And I think in the book it says three and then in the audiobook version she's like, you know what, I decided that three is too many. I'm changing this to two. 
(laughs) (laughs) And so there are lots of little extras like that for audio listeners, which is just so much fun. I really love that. Oh, that's such a nice recommendation. Well, I have like a pretty fun one as well, but it is one where you will learn a lot too. So I want to recommend the podcast, You're Dead to Me. Um, I've actually been listening to this for a while, but they've only just released a new season. So now's a great time to start listening to it because you'll be able to listen to new episodes. It is described as a BBC podcast. It's described as the history podcast for people who don't like history, um, as well as those who do. And it's hosted by Greg Jenner, who is the mind behind Horrible Histories. So oh, they yeah. actually all do, also do a kids' uh, like short history podcast that they started in lockdown in the UK, um, which would be ideal if you're, you know, homeschooling or know someone who is. Um, and it's like a more kid-friendly version. They do also have radio edits of these episodes that they release sometimes which will take out any swearing or naughty bits um but basically he's always joined by a historian who is an expert on whatever topic they're talking about plus a comedian and they're sort of explaining concepts to the comedian but they always start out with things like what do you know which is like the things that you think you know about like let's say Joan of Arc or um the pyramids and the building of the pyramids, you know, they have so many different things, things that I had never heard of, but then they have some fun things like um, the, um, the one we listened to last night was like medicine, um, medicine in ancient Greek and ancient Rome. So they've also had some book related ones. They've had like Mary Shelley and they've also had um, talking about Norse literature. So where all those things like Thor and all the Marvel sort of things come from as well uh, and the real history behind that. Um, But then, you know, specific people as well as ancient societies and stuff. So there's just a huge range of different history in there. Um, Very fun very lighthearted, great to listen to, you know, with your family or, you know, while you're cooking dinner or something, because it doesn't require a lot of brain power, but you're going to learn lots of fun stuff as well. So at the end, they do like a little quiz where they quiz the comedian and ask them, you know, like, what did you learn? (laughs) Um, And it's just, it's just fascinating. And it's always a good conversation. Um, Really, really entertaining podcast. So that is You're Dead to Me. Um, and it is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. I love that. I love starting the episodes with something and being like, so what do you know about, you know, insert thing here? Because it's so funny what like funny facts and things like that of like these massive, you know, historical events or people or whatever that kind of get carried through time. They'd be yeah. like, the only thing I know is, I don't know, I can't even think of an example. but and it, yeah. and it might be some sort of myth that they can say, oh, well, we'll get to that later on. Or, you know, maybe yeah. you know this about them. And it's sort of the stuff that, you know, if we're talking about Mary Shelley, for instance, it'd be like, well, she wrote Frankenstein. Um, but then, you know, they'll dive back into the actual history yeah. or, you know, some stuff that's a little bit lesser known. Um, but it's, I mean, obviously if you yourself, um, know a lot about this topic, it might be like too beginner for you, but it's a sort of great thing where you can get interested in a topic and then think, oh, I'm going to like learn more about that. Or maybe I am going to read a book about the Aztecs because I listened to this or something like, it's a really great sort of general introduction. Yeah, Like I said, it's perfect for like cooking or baking and, you know, you're in the kitchen, you just want something fun to listen to it's chatty, it's nice, makes you feel like you're not alone in lockdown, (laughs) lockdown friends. What's in your favourite episode? Um, Like your favourite thing to learn about? I listen to it on and off. So, you know, I've listened to, I've gone through periods where I've listened to lots of it. And like I said, they've just done a new season. But I think one of the most interesting ones for me was Lord Byron um, and just sort of the, the impact he had on that, like, mad, bad, dangerous to know, like, bad boy legend sort of thing um plus I really enjoyed Ed Gamble being the comedian on that because I really like him so um 
there's lots I want to go and revisit as well because it's been a while since I've listened to them and I've probably forgotten lots of things. Um, but yeah, there's lots of lots of interesting things um, on there, both things that you'll recognise probably and then I'll probably I'm going to guess lots of stuff that you might be like, I've never even heard of that. Yeah, well, I'm not, exact, I'm not exactly a history buff, so I'm sure there'd be lots of things I don't know about. But, yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, there we go. Yeah. There's some, you know, fun things to listen to while we're, you know, if we're in lockdown, going for our on your stupid walk. little walks. Um, <laughs> as stupid I like, little mental health. <laughs> I, that's how I like to refer to them as my stupid little walks. How are your stupid little walks going now that you've challenged yourself to walk 10,000 steps a day in September? It's really a crazy hard. person. <laughs> yeah, so I'm doing the September challenge, which is a fundraiser for the Cerebral Palsy Alliance. Um, and the challenge is to get 10,000 steps a day. And when there is no incidental walking, like, you know, in an ordinary world, whatever that looks like now, um, like if I'm getting the train into the city for work, you know, I have to walk to the train station and then from the train station to the office. And now it's like, guess what? To get to work, it's 10 steps to my dining table. So it's a bit harder to get the numbers up than I anticipated. And I feel a bit silly for thinking that it wouldn't be that hard, but I'm not doing too badly. It's like today we're recording this. It's the 7th of September. I probably won't get to 10,000 today. But I've gotten to 10,003 out of the past six days and about 7,000, 8,000 on the other days. So I'm a bit behind, but not too bad. That's really good, though. I mean, my daily average step count since I started working from home um, and had lockdowns and stuff is like 2,000 if I'm lucky. Yeah, so, it's horrible, you know, isn't it? And it's, it's terrible. It's so bad. Yeah, I know. You know what? I've been working from home all morning. I'll tell you how many steps I've done today. This will be like a fun thing. Everyone, I've done, okay, the stupid pedometer that I've been keeping in my pocket. So I got up and had breakfast and have been working all morning. I've done 175 steps. <laughs> oh, no. Because, like, that's it. Just, I haven't yeah. even, like, gone downstairs to check the post or anything yet. Like, that's... That's making breakfast it, and getting up again to make a cup of tea. <laughs> like, I find it hard too since we got back um, and living in Rockhampton again. As you know, Caitlin, it's the sort of place where you drive everywhere. Yeah. So having a car again is fun in lots of ways. But I had so much more incidental exercise in England when we didn't have a car and I had to walk. You know, if we wanted something from the shops, I had to walk like the closest one was like five minutes away. Yeah. Um, but the big shops were like 10 minutes away and then you've got like walking around the town centre and then like walking back and stuff. And I just realised like I just never do you that do anymore. That. Yeah. No, and even we had to park somewhere in one street um yesterday and we were like oh we'll go since we're here we'll go to these shops um and I was like oh let's just walk there um because I just suddenly was like I'm not going to drive 500 meters like that's really bad yeah it's It's a a country town thing yeah it is and like it depends you know if you can and the fact of the matter is is that in rocky there is a park 500 meters up the road so like you might as well yeah but we didn't yeah we didn't we walked we walked it was good um but also we did have that thing of like at first because I was with Jack he was like oh it's too hot to walk um but it actually wasn't too hot yesterday there was a nice breeze but we are definitely getting to that time of year where you're like I may as well just get in the car because otherwise I'm going to be a puddle of sweat by the time I get where I'm going um which is another reason why I can't wait to move out of this town um and making no secret about that fact (laughs) I'm not prepared for summer I'm not prepared and I've also got this stubborn idea in my head that I don't want to turn the air conditioning on until like October but we'll see how it goes so the start of September and I really want to turn it on so yeah anyway um those recommendations those listening recommendations will keep you going hopefully for a a few hours anyway yeah (laughs) yeah definitely we hope you enjoy this interview and thank you to the team at 
Quirkus for sending us copies of the book to read that we are going to discuss today. Um, and yeah, please enjoy. Our guest today grew up living between the Bahamas and the UK. She's worked as a solicitor at an international law firm and lived in the Middle East for eight years. She's since moved back to England, where she lives with her three children. Her first novel, Blackberry and Wild Rose, was a historical fiction inspired by real characters and events. But her latest novel, The Image of Her, is something entirely different, and we are delighted to be discussing it today. Welcome to Better Words, Sonia Velton. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. As I said there, this novel is something totally different. You've gone in a completely different direction from historical. You've got this amazing sort of pacey, intriguing thriller. And I just was, you had me guessing the whole time <laughs> and I just could not work out where it was going to go. And I, I love reading books like that. So well done on that front. <laughs> Oh, thank you. That's a really lovely thing to say. Thank you. I'm not usually very good at guessing those things. I never can guess the twists in books and like, you know, who did it and like all of those things. But um, obviously we do want to talk about your book, The Image of Her, but we definitely don't want to give anything away, especially anything major. But fair warning, listeners, we might have some minor spoilers um, in our discussion because it's just too hard to avoid. But Sonia, to start us off, how would you describe this novel? Well, I think to introduce the image of her, um, it, it would be good to touch on the inspiration um, behind the book. So I'm sorry yeah, if that was please. your next question. No, <laughs> go ahead, <laughs> tell us. We love Let's it. Just, just flip them over. Um, so the image of her is inspired by something that I heard on the news. And it was just one of those moments where you hear something that is just so completely astonishing to you that you literally have to stop everything, like the world stops for, a, you know, a brief moment and you put down whatever it was that you were doing and you just think, you know, my goodness, what have I just heard? Um, and the feature was about two women who were completely different, uh, but whose lives come together in, you know, really the most truly astonishing way. Um, and I, I just couldn't stop thinking about, you know, these women and not, not them particularly, but, uh, the way they were connected. Um, and I started imagining this story in my mind with two completely different women. And, and this book isn't based on those women in the story in any way whatsoever. Um, it, it only draws on their eventual connection. And, um, I just found it really compelling how you could have two people who, who, who were headed towards this spectacular common destiny, but didn't know each other at the time and were completely different, uh, but yet actually were quite similar in many ways, sort of similar age, similar physical appearance. And so from that was born my two protagonists, Justella and Connie. So the image of her is about these two women and they are very different and they live in completely different countries in the world. Uh, Stella lives in England and um, Connie is an expat in Dubai. And Stella has a very kind of um, quite an insular life and she lives with her mother who's, who's quite narcissistic and overbearing and very controlling. And she sort of struggled all her life with her own identity and, and who she really is and, and trying to sort of break free really and establish herself independently of her mother and then her mother develops dementia and she ends up as her carer her mother has no one else and this culminates in in a in a tragedy for Stella really and it's, it's really a horrendous accident um and so we join Stella at the you know at a, a point of her recovery um and she is developing this obsession with a woman called Connie, who lives in Dubai. And so the first question is, well, why is this woman who lives in, you know, suburbia in the UK so fascinated by this woman, Connie, in Dubai? And, and how can they possibly be connected? Um, so the, the book joins... Um, looks at Connie's uh, 
life through the eyes of Stella initially. So we join her in the opening scene when she plucks up courage finally to Google Connie and to see if she can find out about her on social media, which is something obviously that that we will do. So, um, and when she does, it sort of triggers not a flashback, maybe sort of a flash sideways into Connie's life, which appears to be amazing. You know, she's, you know, all these beautiful photographs of her by these lovely pools and these, you know, spectacular hotels in Dubai. Um, but of course, all is not as it seems. And um, Connie is, uh, you know, struggling maybe to adapt to the expat life in Dubai. And certainly uh, things aren't as amazing as they appear in her photographs. And I have to say, I really loved that first scene because this something so simple as looking up someone on social media and trying to find look at photos of them and trying to find something, that's something that we all do regularly. Like I'm sure I have probably done that today and I couldn't even tell you who I was looking at because we all do it <laughs> all the time. And, it, you know, it can be looking at people we don't know or like, checking up on you know old friends or like people we sort of know of and something so simple that you're immediately drawn in and you're like well who is Connie why do we who's why why do you care about Connie and you're just like in it immediately I think um yeah it it it, one of the things that really fascinates me uh is the, the, the distinction between the person that we put out there you know, for public consumption and who we are and, and, and what's really going on for us. And, you know, I, I, I remember uh, a friend posting this, you know, picture on Facebook and her husband just popping up and saying, that was just such a, you know, <laughs> horrendous day and all the kids were arguing and, and she really objected to that. But I, I thought, well, there you go. You know, like it looks amazing to us, but actually somebody had the honesty to say that behind that, you know, smiling photo, the build up to it was um, something very different. And so I think that, and I used that structure in the book. So although it's a, a dual narrative and the narratives are completely distinct, they're linked because when Stella sees a photograph that takes us into um, Connie's life and then we we see firsthand the events that actually led up to the photograph um, and that they could be, well, they are very different to what it, they would have appeared to have been from the photograph. Um, so, yeah, and it, it's so some of the themes of the book are, you know, how we present ourselves to the world yes in in our social media and and photographs and that sort of thing but also just the the you know our appearance and how the world would see us and what makes us who we are and what gives us our identity and obviously if you've read the book you'll be understanding exactly what I mean in a very profound sense I mean you know literally who are we when we look at ourselves in the mirror um but that you know that'll appear a little bit cryptic, I suppose, to to listeners. But it very much identity and how we present ourselves to the world is is you know very central to the book. And as you say, the way that the uh, the chapters sort of, I like the way you said, is like a a, a sideways sort of flash across almost yeah. rather than a flashback. Yeah. Is really, I think that was probably something that struck me about the book, even though I didn't realise really until you said that, is it did feel quite unique because a lot of dual narrative things will feel a bit choppy sometimes or, you know, maybe you get the same thing from the other person's point of view or whatever. But I really loved the way we did sort of, it was like we were in Stella's head and we sort of looked at the photo and then we're suddenly we're suddenly in that moment and we're experiencing that moment that was captured in the photo and I just thought wow that is such a clever way to do a dual narrative and just something that I felt was really really well done um it's funny too I don't know whether to call this a thriller necessarily because it's not like a classic like murder mystery whodunit like pacey crime because it feels a lot more nuanced than that as well um and really beautiful like you say there's so many you know, different elements of, I guess it is more of like a literary 
thriller in that it is exploring, like you said, what makes us what makes us who we are. Um, so I I find that really really interesting. You mentioned that news story as an inspiration, but was there a moment, you know, where sort of because there's a lot of obviously a lot of themes coming across there. At what point were you like, okay, this is this is so interesting. I need to make it a book. Um, I think I I knew quite early on, really, because I every so often I just get captivated by an idea and it, it just won't leave me. And I think at that point, I know that's it. I just, I, I'm going to have to write a book about it. That's the only way I can sort of process it and, and release it. Um, so, yeah, I just, <clears throat> I, 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 I couldn't let it go. And it just was growing and growing on with this idea of these, these two women. So, um, but even though I thought it would make a great book, I have to say, I, I wasn't convinced that I would actually write it because um, I, it's hard to describe. I, I use the word outre to, to describe the idea because um, it's a little bit, uh, perhaps a little outside your comfort zone, maybe. <clears throat> I don't know how you feel about the, the subject matter. Um, and it is a big spoiler to, to directly talk about <laughs> it. Um, but it was something that I personally found really, really fascinating. But I also understood that not everybody would uh, accept it or be able to accept it as quite as readily as as I did. And I did worry that some people would just find it a little bit too extreme. Um, uh, so I was sort of caught between. So in fiction, it, it sometimes feels like everything's been done before right you know and you're reading books and it's almost like you've read the book before but it, it wasn't actually that book it is a new book but it's sort of recycling the same sort of themes and I really wanted to write something completely different that had never been done before um, but the subjects that are left untouched are, are possibly you know for a reason because they're they're quite <laughs> challenging yeah and quite ambitious um yeah. Uh, and also this and is not a very new topic. stories to tell, I suppose, is also the thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 yeah, so I was caught between having this very unique idea that hadn't, to my knowledge, been done before, but also being a little bit nervous of tackling it um, in case some people found it difficult. So I pitched the idea to my agent, Juliet Mushins, um, I actually found it really difficult to even pitch it. I had this sort of <laughs> long email, you know, you know, I just couldn't come out there and say it. Um, and and then it sort of all went a little bit quiet because uh, Juliet was at a book fair um, and I was just at home biting my nails thinking, oh, what were you even thinking? As a, and then she came back and said, I, th I think it's brilliant, um, you know, and I'd encourage you to write it. So I think that then gave me the confidence to just go ahead and, and write it. Um, yeah. yeah, so I did. <laughs> Yeah, I Good. did. When I finished it, I did just think, oh, my goodness, like what a huge task you had set yourself in terms of, again, can't spoil it, but portraying certain things mm -hmm. with, you know, honesty and not, you know, having it over the top and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I just was like, wow, that is that's a big project. <laughs> that's a yeah, big thing to write. I think um, there's a. It's, it's a sort of one of the big issues in fiction writing is to what extent you're allowed almost to imagine yourself uh, having had certain experiences or being certain people. And you find that difficulty a lot in, um, you know, maybe sort of racial issues and, and cultural appropriation and that sort of thing. Um, and, it, you know, but then I sort of said to myself, well, you know, the reality is that writers can't possibly f experience firsthand everything they write about mm -hmm. um you know we would have no historical fiction I mean that historical fiction would fall away as a genre if you said that writers had to have experienced things you know so I think that um writers are free to imagine things um and as long as you do it in an authentic way uh, on the basis of um uh, sound research and sensitivity then um you know, it, it's okay. Uh, and I, I really felt, 
yeah, I just I, I felt like Stella's voice was very compelling to me. And I felt that I was able to. I mean, nobody can imagine themselves in Stella's situation. I mean, that is just impossible because what happens to her is so profound. But I could imagine an approximation of it. And and I knew, you know, I just knew that if I was in Stella's situation, I would be fascinated by Connie. I, I would think about yeah. her all day, every day. I just would. And I would feel so profoundly connected to her. Um, and and that is that is what the book's essentially about. It's about having I mean, all my books tend to be about um, two women who who have a connection, yeah, and and you know preferably a, a, an unusual um, a connection. And it's about exploring their relationship. And the the interesting thing about Stella and Connie is that they have never met, and you know they never will. Um, but I could. I, I could very strongly imagine how how Stella creates a relationship with Connie in her mind. And that was very real to me. And that's the whole basis of Stella's narrative. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we all yeah. sort of do create relationships with people online. Like Caitlin said before, the opening scenes are something we've literally all done. We've all Googled someone or looked someone up on Facebook. And if you're looking through you know, like a classic example, looking through someone's profile when you're going to date them, you're making up these stories in your mind mm. about who they are and what that represents Absolutely. before you have any idea who they are. So I think that will, a lot of people will resonate that with that, even though, as you say, it's impossible to be in that particular situation, but there's definitely yeah. so many elements in there that people can see in their own lives as well yeah that on that basic level it you know it comes back down to the more simple version of looking someone up before you go on a date or like the we all have imaginary relationships with like celebrities and our favorite singers and actors and stuff like that and they have no idea who we are so (laughs) so humble oh my god they're so amazing like yeah you know and yeah, they're our favourites because we listen to their music or they're, like, in our lounge rooms and everything like that, but they have no idea who we are. But that's, you know, it's a very extreme version of that. Um, but, Sonia, you did mention about doing research um, to make sure that you can tell a story accurately and obviously coming from historical fiction, that usually comes with a lot of research. So how was this different? How much research did you have to do for the image of her? Uh so when I um, I did a lot of research for my first book, um, which, as you say, is historical fiction set in the 18th century. And I think at the end of that, I was quite fatigued by it. I found um, it was like you couldn't write a sentence without stopping to Google chamber pots or, or courses. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I just thought, you know, wouldn't it be great just to write a book, you know, without having to sort without of all that extra stuff. everything, <laughs> you know, she goes into the kitchen. Well, what did the kitchen look like? I don't know what a kitchen looks like, you know. So <laughs> um, I, I, I sort of I, I went into it feeling or, or thinking that it was going to be quite liberating and, you know, uh, for me, um, quite quick you know to to just sort of dash off a contemporary novel compared to a historical one um but it did it did not turn out that way at all because I found (laughs) that you know although I didn't have to sort of check uh all the sort of you know details of day-to-day life the fact is that every time you you write something you you have to you know get it right and I was doing just as much research and you know as I've mentioned I did choose quite an ambitious subject which obviously I'm not familiar with so um I I had to you know research uh, a lot about that and there was a lot of psychology in the book actually um both in relation to Stella's relationship with her mother you know the sort of codependent relationship that they have um where the mother's controlling and and Stella's almost you know you know allowing that you know facilitating that um and then also the the psychological element of how Stella copes with her connection to Connie um, and how she sort of moves forward. Um, and one of the, the, well, I think the nicest things about the book is how it's really about Stella's recovery and how Connie helps her to realise who she is. 
and to to become the person that she wants to be um although you know in a sort of inadvertently really um so i i did look at the psychology and read it you know a few books on um various sort of psychological issues that come up in the book um, and then memory is also a key part of the book um uh particularly with um so Stella's mother suffers from a form of de dementia, um, like fairly early onset uh, semantic dementia. And so I had to research uh, that. And um, <clears throat> it's it, it sort of feeds into um, Stella thinks a lot about memory and how reliable her own memories are. And so her narrative is, is part what she's doing right now, but also flashbacks in terms of her life and what led her to the situation that she found herself in and, and you know, the, the trauma that she experienced. Um, and she sort of frames it by reference to um, the, the different ways that our memories can fail us uh, and, our, you know, the mistakes that we all make in, in terms of when we, you know, recall things and we're adamant that something happened and then you realise that uh, actually it, it, it couldn't have happened like that. Um, so yeah, all in all, and then of course there's Connie's uh, narrative, <clears throat> excuse me, which uh, focuses a lot on the migrant domestic workers in Dubai, um, and so I had to do a fair amount of research on sort of the legal position um, that that they're in and and the laws that um, govern their situation and also how they're changing because they've changed quite recently. Um, so I had to sort of update myself on all of that. So, no, it did not turn out to be <laughs> an easy to Quickly. research book, sadly. <laughs> yeah, actually, that was going to be one of our next questions as well about the, the migrant experience there. Um, was that something that was like influenced by your time living there as well? Yeah, it, it was actually. Um, I mean, there's there's nothing about Connie's um, narrative that that is autobiographical or reflects my own <laughs> personal experience or anything like that. But um, there was one thing that happened um, when I was living in Dubai that really made me think. And um, so it's, it's common in Dubai to have somebody living in your house to help you. Uh, and whether you sort of agree with that or not, um, it, almost everybody does it. Uh, and um, there's just a, a you know, a, a huge workforce of migrant domestic workers working in different industries, uh, construction for the men, for example, um, and then domestically in houses uh, for the women, often women from um, uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, India, Nepal, Sri Lanka. Um, and uh, I, um, I heard about uh, a lady who was living only a few doors down from me, a migrant domestic worker from the Philippines, who um, allegedly had her passport taken, uh, stolen for, by her employer and was being treated really badly uh, for, you know, not given any sort of proper food or days off um, and just basically treated like a slave and expected to work all day, every day with and, and you know, um, treated very badly. And, you know, sort of faced with the question of, of you know, what, what could I do or what should I do? And I think that was a few years ago. And I think now we're very uh, alive to issues like, you know, being a white saviour and it, not sort of wanting to, um, you know, if it's how appropriate it even is to, to sort of step in and think that you, you know, in your privileged situation are going to be able to, you know, solve somebody else's problems. And, you know, I, I, I thought a lot about what I, I could or should be doing. And it, it prompted me because I come from a human rights and discrimination background, because when I was um, practicing as a lawyer, I was I specialized in discrimination law and I um, left the city and joined um, a newly set up human rights and discrimination unit. So that was very much, you know, my background and where I was sort of coming from. And so I remember sitting down and researching, you know, um, uh, their situation and uh, look at Human Rights Watch and the um, reports that they have done over the years on migrant domestic workers in the Middle East um, and, you know, looking at various charities that are there to to provide them with some assistance. Um, and and I think that 
and and that issue is central to to Connie's narrative, um, and she ends up getting far more embroiled in it than than I ever did. Um, but uh, yeah, it was something that um, I, I I suppose I did want to shine a bit of a spotlight on. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I wasn't aware of at all. Um, and yeah, reading some of those scenes were really I, it's upsetting. I was um, in a very different way that fortunately um, my, we can cut this out, Michelle, but um, I had um, an uncle who lived in Singapore for 10 years with his family um, and they had um, a woman from the Philippines who lived with them um, as a bit of a housekeeper and helped their uh, children because they were very young when they moved over there. But they've been back in Australia for years now and like she's the fifth member of their family. Um, we all met her when they would come over to visit. Um, they still are in touch and support her family um, and everything. And thankfully I know that that was a much more positive experience and it's not always that way, but yeah. it is, it, it, it is still a bit positive experience. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. you know what uh, the, the interesting thing is that um, obviously a lot of, the migrant domestic workers who do come over to places like Singapore and the, the Middle East come do so in um, optimistically, you know, with expectations yeah. of getting a good job and supporting their family. And and much as they do not earn a lot of money, as far as you know, we, we would perceive it. For them, they literally can be like I had somebody you know, living with me. And, you know, she would show me pictures of the house that she was building, where she was from, from her, for her family and tell me of her, you know, dreams of going back and setting up a bakery, um, you know, and, and all this was yeah, possible. It, it was possible yeah. and achievable for her because of what she was doing, working with us. And so it, it is not not necessarily or intrinsically exploitative. It's it's just yeah. that it can become so, and that's because of the kafala system, which most countries are trying to, well, ab- abolish or, 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 you know, move away from now. But uh, it, it's that situation where, in, in order to live in the um, the host country, you have to have a local sponsor, and that's the problem because if your whole right to be in a country is dependent on this local sponsor sponsoring yeah. you. You can't complain. It's very hard, you know, to say, look, I'm being mistreated or I'm going to leave. Well, you can leave. So, you know, and and you can't actually leave because they've taken the passport. Um, And so practically you can't leave. And then theoretically you can't leave because as you can't change job because you your whole right to remain is tied up with that person. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a difficulty. Yeah, yeah. again, something that was very interesting in the novel as well and a good thing to learn more about, um, especially, if, yeah, like you live in a culture where that is not the norm at all, like Australia or the UK. Um, yeah. So obviously you mentioned before that your previous novel was historical fiction and, you know, you wanted to sort of write, was, was it like a conscious decision to be like, I want to write something completely different or was it just a natural progression? Um, see, I, I appreciate that the publishing industry sees everything in terms of genre, but I actually personally <laughs> don't, <laughs> which I'm sure is endlessly frustrating for other people. But um, yeah, I'm just very ideas driven. And, you know, I, I wish that I had like, you know, a string of amazing novel ideas and I could literally cherry pick them and say, okay, well, this one will fit best or this is the most marketable thing. But for me, novel ideas choose me. I don't choose them. And once one's chosen me, then I I can't put it off. You know, I, I, <laughs> I just have to write that. I don't have any choice in the matter. So it really was a question of this idea getting hold of me and not letting me go. So I, I, I mean, I could have written another historical novel, but I, I know that at that point I would have been writing it because it was expected, not because I was passionate about it. And I just felt yeah. that that was probably not going to help anybody because it would be, wouldn't be as interesting for me to write 
it wouldn't be as good a book because I wasn't passionate about it. And then it would be no good for the reader because, you know, readers are going to notice if if I'm not, you know, totally invested in it. So I thought it was better to write the book that was in my heart and asking to be told. And and this was most certainly uh, the image of her and um, Stella and Connie's stories. Um, so I didn't really, you know, I didn't say, OK, right now I'm going to write a thriller. Um, but, uh, you know, I did quite I think. I do like writing different things and I think that's partly why both of my books have been dual narratives because um, I find it quite refreshing to have two different stories to follow because it keeps it fresh for me and and you know sort of every day you can sit down and and it feels like it's something a little bit new because okay right today I'm going to do Connie you know and today I'm going to do Stella and so it, it just feels like there's a bit of variety um, and I think in in genre I I found that too I I just thought um you know they're books that I you know I enjoy and um so we're calling it a thriller but as you you said earlier it's it isn't really a thriller I mean it doesn't fit into the thriller mold at all um it's maybe more of a suspense novel so it has a lot of psychological suspense and you know possibly crossover to the the you know, thriller genre as well. And of course, that's a genre. But personally, I think that all books should have that. You know, as soon as it's got suspense mm-hmm. in it, you say, OK, it's a suspenseful. But shouldn't every book we reread draw us in like that? Shouldn't every book keep us hanging and, and, and send us on twists and turns? And then, you know, sort of have something at some big resolution you know at, at its heart you know and personally I think they should all novels have suspense novels because we read them to find out what happens yeah. at the end of the story yeah or at least yeah. they should be I wouldn't say yeah. they will yeah. are but <laughs> they well that's very true yeah <laughs> um one of the podcasts that I listen to is called chat 10 looks three and they talk about books and television and all that sort of stuff but they sort of I don't know whether they came up with the term or, you know, whether it's something that they'd read somewhere, but they often talk about uh, literary page turners. And I feel like it definitely fits into that. Like it provokes you to think a lot about like topics and things like that, but it has that sort of, oh my God, I can't put this down. But I would sort of say that the traditional thriller in my eyes doesn't require me to think as deeply as a novel like this has so I think that's where like the literary aspect definitely comes in and I feel like your writing style as well is very thoughtful in that way and really like I said before quite beautiful in a lot of places as well um so yeah maybe literary page turner is a more oh. apt description <laughs> I don't know <laughs> oh, well that's a huge compliment you know thank you Michelle because uh I mean, that's the holy grail of writing, as far as I'm concerned. I think that's what, well, certainly what I'm trying to achieve. And I think that people would like to separate things out into, you know, books that are page turners, but maybe they're slightly, I don't know, uh, doubt, you know trashy or whatever. And, and then literary, you know, books that are, are worthy from a literary standpoint. And, you know, maybe you're not frantically turning the pages. And I just, I don't, I don't buy into that at all. I, a book should be both. And you shouldn't have or you shouldn't as a reader have to compromise and have one without the other. It should be a cracking good story, you know, full of, you know, suspense and the unexpected. But it should be written in ideally beautiful and intelligent way and give you plenty to think about. Well, that is yes, entirely absolutely. what people can expect from the image of her. So, <laughs> right. we very private as well. Yeah, <laughs> no more trashy commercial books and boring yeah, no literary books. We want I, mean, I, really, I don't mean to sound sushi at all, but you know, I, 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 I'm. I'm all I'm saying is I don't think you should have to compromise or you shouldn't have to give up one to have the other I think you know ideally you should you should have both but I've I've read plenty of um all over the sort of films (laughs) and I've loved them and they're very relaxing and enjoyable to read so I'm not at all being um derogatory about them but you get to write the book that you want to read so I think that's totally fair to say (laughs) yeah yeah what do you think you know going forward were you completely switch genres again to use that publishing term well I yeah I'm in a little slightly difficult position now because um I kind of have to you know, move forward with with one or the other um I would say uh so you know historical fiction is my first love 
you know, I, I really, I grew up reading historical fiction and I always wanted to write historical fiction. So um, I, I don't think I'm going to be separated from historical fiction, you know, that easily. Um, and as I said before, my books come from a topic that I become, you know, very invested in and captivated by. And I have found something that um, I, can, I can't stop thinking about. And I, so I have, have sort of started a third book. But what I would definitely take with me from the image of her is the suspense angle. And so, as I was saying before, you know, if my third book turns out to be historical I won't be foregoing the suspense angle I would be absolutely it will still be you know not a thriller as such but you know a suspense novel which has you know a number of central questions that the reader is you know wanting to know and keeps the reader guessing throughout the whole book um leading to you know an ultimate reveal so it'll it'll sort of follow the same structure and have the same I you know I hope intrigue and suspense in it but uh it may well be going back a few years <laughs> in terms of its setting. That sounds fascinating I love that so you know as you mentioned before as well you have also worked as a lawyer and you worked internationally in lots of different areas what prompted you to start writing novels? So I think it was a combination between enjoying writing um, and uh, wanting to do it, uh, but also a being a little disillusioned with with my career as a lawyer. Um, I didn't, you know, there were a lot of things about it that I enjoyed and I, I found very fulfilling. And I certainly enjoyed, you know, working in discrimination law far more than where I started, which was in sort of like banking, international finance and a sort of big city, you know, firm. So the corporate world was, was definitely not for me. But, you know, even as a discrimination lawyer, contentious employment, I, you know, I was a little bit sort of disillusioned perhaps a little bit bored so I was sort of thinking what else could I do and I actually considered becoming a journalist and then I looked into that and then I kind of you know thought well you know why don't you just you know think about writing a book and at the at the time I lived in Bethel Green which is very near Spitalfields in London and I was sort of spending my Sundays, you know, walking around the streets of Spitalfields and going to Spitalfields Market, as many people do in that area. And I was just walking down the the beautiful Georgian streets, um, like Fournier Street and uh, around there. And I looked up at the houses and and I just was, again, I just really captivated by who had lived there in the past and looking at the little blue plaques about Anna Maria Garthwaite, who was the um, foremost silk designer of the mid-18th century. Um, and they look at, at the top of the houses, they had these really big windows um, and they were called long lights to uh, allow as much light as possible into the attic so that the silk weavers could weave for as long as possible. And the thought that of, of you know this household of master silk, silk weavers in the 18th century producing these most exquisite figured silks was just you know overwhelming to me. And so I think you know that the inspiration of that idea to set a novel in a household of of Huguenot silk weavers in the 18th century, combined with you know my career sort of stalling a little bit, just it's like those two halves came together, and that's what you know made me think okay you know just just give it a go but it wasn't something that happened quickly it wasn't like I just dashed off a novel and I always <laughs> listen to people who do and I just think how you know and I, I admire <laughs> them so much but that is not how it happened for me I mean I literally I wrote a bit and then I fiddled about and then I wrote a bit more and I was you know very um I think you know looking back I think maybe I was looking for someone to give me permission to write you know I, I just wanted someone externally to say it's okay to make space in your life for this, or, you know, you can do this, or you are good at this. And I, I didn't really get that. And so I think that's why it went on for years and years. Um, it, you know, so I, I think I could have maybe believed in myself more and, and done a little, little quicker. Um, but as it is, I just, 
you know, I had it, it was like a hobby, really, you know, it was just something I had that was, you know, just for me. And I would sort of retreat into it and, and do a little bit. And I didn't really necessarily think that I would maybe do anything with it until until much later, actually, when I went to live in Dubai. Uh, and then I couldn't, you know, practice discrimination law when I was in Dubai anyway. And I was pregnant with my first child at that time. And then I had two more. So I very much then entered the sort of baby zone and, you know, with uh, <laughs> babies and young children. And although people do write books whilst the baby's having their nap, um, that, that I wasn't one of those people who were able to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, the writing sort of was, you know, ticking along, um, taking a back seat really at that time. Uh, and it was only when the children were a little older. And, and then I found that, you know, suddenly years had passed and I'd been out of the legal profession for a long time. And it's actually very hard for women to re-enter the profession. Um, and I went on this, you know, course, it's about women returners and, um, you know, how to get women who'd had a career break back to the law. And they were talking about success stories, but these so-called success stories were women who were really, really talented and highly qualified, who had gone back into the legal profession, maybe as paralegals or at newly qualified level, despite eight years of post-qualification experience. And I just thought, gosh, you know, yeah, it's a success story, as in they managed to get back in a profession, but I didn't personally find it very inspiring. In fact, I found it no. quite depressing that you had to compromise like that. One, I, I didn't really... Uh, you know enjoy it that much that. to begin with and <laughs> the thought of going back as a newly qualified you know it was was not appealing so I thought okay now now's the time let's what else do you have in your life that you could uh you know try to progress and you know I had like 20,000 words of a, <laughs> of a novel um so that was it <laughs> Yeah, took the leap and tried something. I guess you had nothing to lose at yeah. that point. Yeah, I, I, you know, you sacrifice a lot to write a novel. I mean, you do because you are spending a lot of time writing. I mean, I'm not a fast writer. It, you know, it's fine if you can, you know, write one quickly, I suppose. You say, okay, six months. But, um, uh, you know, I, I put a lot of research into what I write and I think very carefully about it. So it took a long time and you're, you do have to give up other things you have to make sacrifices and you know um just so you know your social life or whatever so I I and I think it, it was making that decision that I was prepared to make those sacrifices that made the difference because um yeah it's it, you aren't ever going to get someone who's going to give you permission to write and you're never going to go into writing a book knowing that you will get published or knowing that it's worth the investment. You just have to make the decision that it's worth it to you, you know, just to try. Um, and I think once I got my head around that, um, and then also along the way, I got little pieces of encouragement that kept me going, you know, that made me think, okay, well, there's, you know, I would never have written a book just to sit in a drawer. That's not me. And, and plenty of people can and do because they just want to write that it's the process that they enjoy and they'd love to get it published but even if they aren't going to get it published they still want to write it whereas I'm so far too pragmatic for that I, I wouldn't do it I, I, I was like why would I want to write a book to put to sit in a drawer I want to write books so people read it and enjoy it um so yeah I had enough encouragement at various stages to to make me think that maybe you know this could happen um, and that definitely helped me to get on and finish it. Just love your whole attitude to it to like just yeah just do it for you and like you've got to want to write the book and you're right because even previously published authors don't always know if that one that they're working on will get published. Yeah uh, there, there are no no guarantees but that said sometimes you do have to write the book yeah. that stays in the drawer in order to write something better yeah, yeah so in I should, order to get the next probably, idea you know make that clear is that uh, you know I wrote an entire draft of my first novel which was really really bad yeah <laughs> I, it, and it would never ever be published and it had so many things wrong with it but um you know what it was a good first attempt and that's all it had to be and so yeah. I I knew that it wasn't working so I just took everything about it that did work which was basically the setting and the character names. And that was it. <laughs> um, and then I thought, okay, I am going to 
rewrite it and I'm going to rewrite it better. And so, you know, I still have that draft and, you know, it wasn't good enough, but it was a great first step. Um, so, you know, although I wouldn't write just to have a novel in the jaw, sometimes you do have to write through that first draft which will yeah, just absolutely. stay where it where it should be you know at the bottom of a wardrobe somewhere or wherever in order to then you know move forward and, and you know it's just practicing isn't it it's a ten thousand yeah. hours role you've got to you know put the time in keep going yeah. yeah yeah so then how did you actually get your book deal so um i entered so i because i had struggled to complete the novel um, I was looking for um, competitions to enter uh, that only requires having the opening of a novel, not a completed <laughs> novel. That was my one requirement that you can you didn't have to have actually written a book. You just could have that opening. And um, I don't know if it's still the, the case now, but certainly when I entered it, um, which was back in 2015, uh, the Lucy Cavendish College Fiction Prize only required the first 20,000 words a novel and I thought okay so I'll I'll enter that because I did have that because I'd spent a lot of time sort of you know tinkering with the opening and that's a complete distraction technique I now see (laughs) yes I I became very good at writing novel openings and not very good at writing actual novels um so yeah I I I sent it in and it it got shortlisted and I think I mean that was certainly my you know, big break, I think, to, you know, um, use a bit of a cliche. From there, um, I, the, the, you know, just the, the shortlisting and the novel being on the website did attract the attention of um, some agents. And, um, but I think everyone's got in their mind, you know, who their dream agent is or who, you know, in an ideal world, they would really love to represent them, you know, maybe a, an agent that's represented similar books or whatever. Um, and for me, that person was Juliet Mushins. And so I I then sent my book to her, you know, just in the slush pile, just explaining that, you know, I'd been shortlisted and I just really, you know, wanted her to have a look at the book and see if she was interested in, in representing me. Um, and she came back and said, yes yeah well she said it, it needs quite a lot of work <laughs> but if you're prepared to <laughs> yes. do that and luckily Juliet so sort of agent who will help you with that because that is what I really needed um yeah. is is I needed someone who was prepared to you know get involved in in the editorial process and you know, not all agents are but you know she just really sat down and said okay this is what you need to do and that I was so ready to do it um because yeah I just just to have that I guess vote of confidence if you like and you know thought that yeah, I, you know, if I work on it, it could go somewhere. So, yeah. And someone in your corner, I guess, and then obviously helping yeah. actually get it to publishers and stuff like that, someone with that yeah. industry experience. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Are you, um, that third book that you're working on, yeah. um, do you have like um, a deal for that already or is that something that you know you'll just work on in the background and see what happens yeah so I'm just working on it um at the, at the moment um I think you know part of the difficulty of of swapping genres and things is that it's sort of less easy to do sort of uh you know future deals because you know I don't even know what I might write next like anybody else <laughs> yeah um uh yeah um and I I quite like that I quite like just sort of working on a standalone project and then you know seeing where it might go so uh yeah just but you know it's it's uh it's nice to have I'm just really pleased actually to have an idea that I'm really excited about and and it feels like it's it's the right time to get started with it because I find that ideas they they sort of exist in your head for a while you know and then they kind of take over and then there's a certain point where you know you've really got to start writing it down and there are lots of uh, analogies of books and babies but this is exactly like that you know it's just sort of been in the back of my mind for a while you know just sort of getting bigger and bigger and now it's like I'm coming out so um, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm gonna find <laughs> sit down and get on with it yeah well good luck with that and congratulations again on the release of the image of her I'm sure everyone can tell from listening that 
it's, you know, a book that we really enjoyed, something that we found really gripping and yeah, yeah definitely one we recommend. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's yeah. a lovely thing to say. I really appreciate it. Thank you both. Um, well, I mean, what is it, you know, unless you come on a podcast, like where else are you going to get flattery like this? Like, <laughs> you know, that's our job as podcast hosts is to just flatter our authors, <laughs> but we mean it. We mean it. We don't have people on whose work that we, you know, don't genuinely really enjoy. So oh yeah, it's wonderful. The interviews would be horrible. Story. Could you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so where can people find and follow you online? So I'm on Twitter um, at Sonia Velton and Instagram at Sonia Velton. Uh, it's got one of the perks of having quite an unusual name is uh, it's just at Sonia Velton. The handle's not uh, taken. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.